Hi, my name is Martin Purnell, and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. This podcast is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. You can contact us as well by email, ogc at accessradio.biz. Check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity, and we have our own website now, offgridchristianity.co.uk. So please enjoy today's guest. Together with his wife, June, founded a church and then pastored for 45 years. He has ministered in 36 nations and has led worship at Wembley Stadium to 45,000 people in the 90s, but puts his most cherished role down as being a husband, a father, and now grandfather. He has a series of books entitled He Still Speaks. With the latest release, He Still Speaks to Kids, Teach Children and Young Adults to Hear God. Our guest also releases podcasts, often with a good friend to off-grid Christianity, namely Mr Noel Richards. So, why did he want to start a church during the Jesus Movement? How do you start a church? What is the Jesus Movement? How did he get into music, and who were his musical heroes at the time? How did you equip people to move into the gift of prophecy? Why did he start writing a book about God still speaking to such and such? Gives me great pleasure to welcome to Off Grid Christianity and looking forward to all these answers. All the way from USA, Mr. Wayne Drain. Wayne, thank you so much for joining us today. Where are we speaking to you, sir? I'm in Russellville, Arkansas. It's about in the northwest part of Arkansas, which Arkansas is on the uh, east side is Tennessee. The southern side is Louisiana. Uh, the western side would be Oklahoma and northern side would be Missouri. Oh, is that part of the Bible Belt? Oh, yeah. Almost smack dab in the middle. Let's get on with it then. First of all, the five questions. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, who would it be? Well, I've thought about that, and and the one I keep coming back to is Mark Twain. Oh, really? Also known as Samuel Clemens. When I was a little boy, I read uh, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, and it just caused me to fall in love with reading. And I found from my little library in, in my hometown, I was able to go all over the world reading. And he always uh, inspired me, and I read much of his writings, and I was inspired to write stories and songs and poems uh, like he did. And then I liked that he was, uh, I think he was a Christian. He may have been an agnostic, but he was uh, described himself as a non-religious Presbyterian who called himself a prophet. Uh, but he, he referenced the Bible and characters in the Bible, especially Jesus, in most of his writings. But I like it that he took the mickey out of a Uh, a lot of religious cows. And so from an early age, he helped me to be myself in the middle of the Bible Belt. So I would have to say Mark Twain. I keep a little bust of Mark Twain on my bookshelf so I can look at it occasionally when I'm writing and and be inspired by him. Why did he choose the name Mark Twain then, if his real name is Samuel? Most people had a pen name, and he had some seedy things in his past he was trying to avoid people learning about. So he just, I don't know exactly why he chose Mark Twain, uh, but that's what he was known as. And he, he only went back to referring himself to Samuel Clemens later in life. Wow, that's brilliant. Because uh, over here in uh, the UK, we have a TV series called um, University Challenge. And one of the very first episodes went out in 1968, 70, something like that. One of the universities that got to the final, they knew they weren't going to win. But uh, having had a, a few bevies before getting to the, <laughs> the studios, so the story goes... They said, listen, if you get a question and it's a quotation, it's going to be one or two people. It'll either be Winston Churchill or Mark Twain. 
And uh, yeah, sure enough, yeah. they got a quotation. They buzzed the buzzer. They said, oh, I think that's Mark Twain. And they got it right. Well, I don't know how many quotations he's come up with, but I think the inference there is there are rather a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He, he spoke my language. He you know, lived along the Mississippi, which Arkansas is along the Mississippi. And he, uh, and he wrote in a dialect that was easy for me to understand. How come if it's written down as Arkansas, everyone says Arkansas? How's that? Well, it's actually an Indian name. It means downstream people. And, uh, and the Indians uh, say Arkansas. It's not spelled that way, but if you spell it phonetically the way they spoke it, it's Arkansas. Gee, thank you. I've always wanted to know that. Question two. Who is your favorite biblical character or favorite biblical story or favorite parable, please, Wayne? Well, I think like probably like most worship leaders, musicians, my favorite would be David. I mean, you have to say Jesus. It's almost illegal if you don't say Jesus. But after that, my favorite character would be would be David because he was a he was a worshiper. He was a songwriter, a poet, great leader, man after God's own heart, all those things. But what I liked is that David heard sounds that there were no instruments for. Yes. Then he would explain the sound and he would try to get artisans to come and make that instrument to make that sound that he heard in his head. And in that time, people that weren't a part of God's people would sit around drinking bowlfuls of beer and try to play the way David did. And I think often the church is just the opposite. We sit around uh, drinking uh, tea and coffee and try to sound like uh, the musicians that are that don't know the Lord. And so I feel I feel I've always thought that the best music ought to spring out of the church. Uh, or at least those that are believers, because they've got a real reason to play with excellence because it's for something greater than themselves. And so David did that. Mm. I love it that he was authentic. I love it that the Bible didn't hold back and tell him about all of his uh, mistakes, his screw-ups, his sin. And and I like it that he was honest, especially Psalm 51, to me, is one of the all-time great laments in all of Scripture. And it gives me the courage to be transparent and honest in a way that I might not be living in the Bible Belt. Mm -hmm. So David is a big hero for me. I often talk on podcasts about having my own time machine that I bought off on eBay. Okay, slightly made up, so just bear with me on this. Sure. But if we went back and brought David to modern day and we showed him what was going on as far as church worship was concerned, what do you think he'd make of it? I think he might have a hard time finding God in it always. Because a lot of times it's not a lot different than performance. You know, someone said that that a lot of churches, if you took the Holy Spirit out of the church, they'd carry on without missing a beat. And I think David was really discerning about the presence of God. And, and, I, th- and I think some churches he would absolutely flow with and just and love. But I think I think he would find them overall to be a little a little religious for his for his liking. In what way? Uh, not always authentic, especially here in America. We like to put a good smiley face on everything. And you ask us how we're doing, we'll always, like British people will say, not so bad. But American people will say, I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. Yeah. And I love that about America, but I also realize it, it's often a facade. And so I think he would see through facades uh, where we found them. But I think when he saw the real thing, I think he would just join in and probably dance with abandon as he was known to do and and would become even more undignified uh, Mm. than what he said there. I wonder if it'd have a problem with uh, offended telly. 
or find a strat yeah. on the stage. Right. Question three. If you were prime minister for the day, or maybe president of the USA, you can choose on that one and could change any law or impose a new law, what would it be, please, Wayne? Well, I can't speak to UK because I've tried for all these years to understand politics in the UK and I can't quite get my mind around grown people yelling at each other for an hour and, and uh, trying to get something done. But if I were the president of the USA, I thought about it. The thing that I would like to impose a law, if I could, is that we would balance our budget every year, that we would not be able to just keep spending as if and keep making money, which we're in tremendous national debt right now. Mm. I mean, in my own personal finances, if I spent more than I made, there's going to be some severe consequences. Yes. I think at some point the chickens are going to come home to roost uh, if we don't get this thing fixed. And so everybody talks about it, but nobody really makes a law about it. My home yeah, state, yeah. Arkansas, uh, Bill Clinton balanced the budget every year when he was, he was governor here. But it was because we have a law in the state that you had to balance the budget and it would shut things down if you didn't. So I think I would, that would be the first thing I would do. That's a brilliant one. I've watched The West Wing three or four times now, and this is the first time I ever picked up on the fact that, hey, if you don't balance the budget by a certain day or whatever, you close things down, like the libraries and everything that's run by the government. It's, it's a big thing, isn't it? It's a big thing, but they get around it every year. They, they yeah. come in at the last minute and say, okay, we're going to, we're going to extend it for three months, for six months. We're going to, uh, we need to spend this money and we're just going to tack it on to what we owe. There's some, some other nations that own almost as much land as we do in America right now because we've had to borrow so much. We look shiny and bright in, in yeah. lots of ways as a nation and we got a lot of good things. But I think that one thing concerns me uh, probably more than anything. Brilliant. Thank you. Great answer. Question four, Wayne. Outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out to date, please? Well, I think there's a tie between two day outs that I had. First, in 1997, I was asked to uh, lead worship with Noel Richards and Martin and various people at, at Wembley Stadium. And I found it to be one of the most exhilarating and wonderfully terrifying things I've ever done. Uh, I remember I was down underneath the stage and I had a young guy from my church with me. He was a, a worship leader that I was mentoring and and I came up from underneath the stage, going to do my couple of songs. I get to the top, and I must have just looked petrified because my young friend put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, Wayne, you were born for this. And when he said that, all that anxiety just lifted. I went out and had one of the most enjoyable times leading a couple of songs I ever had. So that was one. The one that was tied with that would be the very next year when I got to uh, lead worship at the Royal Albert Hall with Matt Redman and, and Noel Richards. It was, I think it was called... Uh, uh, Revival Town was the name of the uh, of the evening that Gerald Coates hosted, but it was in a round stage, and and Cliff Richards had been doing his Christmas program, and so we got to use his stage and his PA, and everything was all set up, so it was wonderful. So it was the three of us on this round stage, and then we had a sixty piece orchestra that played along with us, which was amazing. And this is a little known fact: Brian Houston from Belfast, Ireland, was my guitar tech. Oh, was he? And I, got, I like to tell people that I, I gave him a start uh, in the whole music. Of course, that's a big lie, but I like to tell it. Oh. <laughs> but he was your guitar tech that night. Exactly. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was at the, the Wembley Stadium in 1997. Oh, you were? Yeah, I was. The thing that I remember the most, funnily enough, about it was that going down there to do a load of interviews with whoever I could get hold of, 
right. a couple of people rebuffed me. You know, they, they were far too busy, stroke important to spend just mm-hmm. even two, three minutes. And at the very right. end, when everyone was packing away, I saw Noel Richards in the distance. And I go over to him and I said, is there any chance I could just get, you know, a soundbite or whatever? He said, well, I'm just about to get changed. You know, do it whilst I'm getting changed. And we found this massive big broom cupboard. Yeah. And I kid you not. And we went in there and Noel was so gracious. It was brilliant. That was the first time I met him. Yeah. That was fantastic. That's what I remember most about. He was one of the most unselfish guys I've ever met. Of course, he's a great friend to me. But I remember on the day, he was more concerned that everybody else would get to play than pushing himself. And I thought that was, you know, musicians often just aren't like that. It's like the clash of the killer egos when they get together, even Christian ones. Yeah, yeah. But he just set the tone and and there's just no ego problems that I could see. There was no sense of competition. It just everybody was celebrating everybody. It's one of those magical days that I was so glad I got to be a part of. Thank you. Question five then. What has been your most embarrassing moment, please, Wayne? Well, I had to confine myself to one because I've had a few, but one that stuck out in my mind as I was speaking at an early morning breakfast with a group of pastors in, in my city. And as I was speaking, I have a false tooth in front that was knocked out when I was playing sport. And so I had a false tooth there. And while I'm speaking, my front tooth fell out into my porridge. And so everyone's looking at me. They saw it. I saw it. What do you do? I just reached down in my porridge and pulled my tooth out. And I said, well, I'll just stick that in later. And I, and I carried on. But I, suddenly I've got this gap in my tooth that everyone was trying their best <laughs> to avoid commenting on. But that was, I, I remember telling my wife, I said, this is one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. <laughs> Hadn't happened uh, since, but man, that was a, that was it. Yeah. You wanted the tooth, the whole tooth and nothing but the tooth, didn't you? On that? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you for that. Just get a better understanding who Wayne Drain is. Yeah. I did mention right at the very beginning that you started a church during the Jesus movement. Now, for those that don't really know what the Jesus movement was, what was it, please, Wayne? Well, it was a... Uh, it was a spontaneous, spiritual, some people call it revival, some people call it awakening, but it happened among youth across our nation, in which about nearly a million young people gave their lives to Jesus. You can trace its roots somewhat to people like Lonnie Frisbee and things happening on the West Coast, uh, but we were in the middle of the country, and so it actually it started in like 68, and it, it hit our campus in the middle of the country is in, in 71, 72. And I remember I was at a Bible study on campus. I'd just been filled with the Spirit. And these these guys from Campus Crusade for Christ had their guitars out playing, and, and uh, we invite them down into our little Bible study. And that Bible study went from about 10 people to 20 to 30 to 50 to 70 to 200 to 250 in like, in like a month. And it was like kids were coming up to us and saying, we hear you're one of those Jesus freaks. We didn't know if they're going to hit us in the mouth or what. And we'd say, well, yes, I am. And then they would say, well, what do I do? Whatever you guys have, I want it. And so we, we thought that was normal. And so it was all about evangelism. Uh, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have cell phones. We had a lot of Volkswagen vans and uh, we, uh, we hitchhiked a lot, but it was pretty much spread by word of mouth. And then during that movement, uh, like a lot of moves of the spirit, music became a forerunner of a lot of what happened. And mm-hmm. the music that we were playing became what was called contemporary Christian music. 
And I was a part of that whole genre for a while. And people you may or may not have heard of like Keith Green and mm. Second Chapter of X and Andre Crouch and, and Love Song, people like that. Mm. We didn't have a music industry, but we we just had a passion to take the gifts that we had and, and, and give what we had for the glory of Jesus. And it was about him. And so the church pretty much, the traditional church did pretty much didn't want to let us in because of the way we looked, the way we dressed. And so we had to find other places like coffee houses. And we had big open air events out in fields where thousands of people would show up. It was like the miraculous happened. We saw people healed and saved and baptized and, and uh, lives transformed and changed around. It became a cultural phenomenon when our Time magazine and Life magazine did a cover on the Jesus movement. And then people like Elton John would sing about Jesus freaks in the streets and the Doobie Brothers saying, Jesus is just all right with me. And, all right. yeah. and in the top 10, there's even a, a gal called the Singing Nun had a, got into the top 10 with her song, Dominique. And so suddenly it was it was it was everywhere. Jesus was well. He went from church to Main Street, and he was he was seen as a revolutionary by my generation, and we and we love that about him. And then we just we would be invited from place to place, and we'd jump in our van and go, and and uh, relationships formed. And then out of then out of that later on, a lot of those early leaders, whether they were worship leaders or whatever they were. Uh, started churches because a lot of the traditional church didn't really want us to come. So we had to start our own and we were loath to call ourselves a church, but we, so we pretty much called ourselves a fellowship and a lot of churches had the name fellowship in their, in their name from those days. Mm. But it was, it was raw. It was edgy. It was rock and roll and a redeemed rock and roll. So uh, there's a lot now there. You know, this is the 50th anniversary of the uh, Jesus movement. And there's a the movie, The Jesus Revolution has come out. I think it's gotten to England now. And it's become a it's become a bestseller selling out everywhere. The TV series, The Chosen, is, has gotten into more nations now than I have. And so there's it seems like I don't know how much you want me to say, but back in February, the Asbury revival broke out in, yes. in Asbury and Right away when I was watching it, it felt familiar. In, in what way, Wayne? Well, both eras were in a time of turmoil when a lot of people were not, there's war and there was a lot of people that didn't have a lot of confidence in the government or, or education system and, and didn't trust businessmen, things like that. And so we tried finding through drug, sex and rock and roll and Eastern religion and whatever we could look for, we were trying to find peace. We we're trying to find something that was real. And in the middle of all that, there's this young guy named Lonnie Frisbee out in California comes to Jesus and starts telling people about the Lord. And suddenly they're baptizing 5,000 people in the, uh, in the ocean. And it's interesting that, that since February, there have been thousands of people baptized in the same area in California that they were baptizing them in the early 70s. So it feels culturally Church-wide, church-wise, it feels the current mood of the country. It just seems right for a move of the spirit that's real and authentic and not about personalities, but about something real. And so it feels to me like we're at least in the edge of a second Jesus movement. Wow. And so I've been going from place to place and telling people that for a few years now. And, and it certainly seems that something is up. 
I don't think it'll be trying to replicate what happened in that first Jesus movement. I think the only thing that's going to be really the same is going to be that is the name. I was praying about that and I said, Lord, why do you want to call it the Jesus movement this time around? And he said to me in my spirit, he said, I kind of like that name. It's about focusing on him, what he taught, what he's telling us today, what he's speaking today. And uh, I'm seeing, especially among the Z generation, just a real hunger and a thirst in the meetings and concerts we're doing. And just, and they're just running forward to give their lives to the Lord. And spontaneous baptisms are happening everywhere where we can find a, a body of water. Folks are getting baptized. And uh, it's starting to be an alternative for people that have found most systems bankrupt for them. Mm. People in Hollywood getting saved. Really? Yep. Lots going on there. So I think we're in, we're on the front end of it and I'm just praying that it just keeps going. And I think one of the things that stopped the first Jesus movement was an absence of fathers. Why'd you say that? The first Jesus movement was pretty much young people from about 17 years old to maybe 21 Mm -hmm. or so, which I was right in there in that age group. When we responded to the Jesus movement, a lot of our fathers and mothers, if we weren't already alienated from them, they've rejected us. And there was a thing called the generation gap back then, and the generation just couldn't come together. As I read in Malachi that in the last days, God will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. I felt like some of my contemporaries back in the day didn't make it because they had no spiritual fathering or mothering that could help them find their sea legs. And so I'm wondering if maybe the reason, one of the reasons I'm still around and people my age is maybe we can be the mentors and the fathers and the mothers to this move of the spirit that will maybe the casualties uh, will not be so great. And maybe some of these, these young people can be established if we won't try to control it. And if we will just uh, do our best to underpin it and give advice that's asked for and give lots and loads of encouragement, then I think yeah. it might last longer. One thing I've learned about history yeah. is that we don't really learn anything from history. That's right. It's an old joke, but actually uh, there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. And I think if we could compare to what happened 50 years ago, then maybe we are going to see a better revival. That's my prayer for, for the UK, that we do get a revival. So perhaps we could compare and contrast, and I'll put it into perspective. You first mentioned uh, Jesus' revival kicked off in 1968. I was seven years of age. Right. I was engrossed watching sports on TV when we only had three TV channels. Mexico, 1968, loved watching the Olympics. I remember these athletes from America, when they were winning a medal, they just suddenly raised their their left fist up in the air and thought, oh, is that what you have to do? Little did I realise that actually that was a symbol for the Black Power. Right movement right you had that going on and yet on the other side of the coin you had revival going on in the west coast of america as you were saying and then there was a film that came out only this year called the summer of soul and the reason why i mention this is that if you say 1969 to people love their music they'll say oh woodstock but there was another one going on in east harlem in new york where everybody but everybody who was into black music they would go and be singing their hearts out and it was filmed and the film just lay wasted in the basement and you found about three, four years ago. So a lot of money is being spent on it to recondition it for a release. Right. And I finally sat down and watched it last week. Wow. I know. And this backs up what you're saying because on stage, 
you had a 19-year-old Stevie Wonder, who just happened to show could play the drums as well as a piano. Right. Very jealous. But you also have Pop Staples, the Staples singers, Mavis Staples talking about it. Yep. Mahalia Jackson, one of the greatest singers of all time. Mm -hmm. She was on stage. And they had like a two-hour film. Now, 15, 20 minutes, Fifth Dimension, it was all geared to this is what's going on in the gospel scene. Right, right. Would we get that today? Most probably not, but certainly for the future. So enough of my waffle. Right. <laughs> Let's compare and contrast then, please. What, what do you think? Well, I think you might have been talking to Tony Cummings when you're talking his language about that. Era. No, I worked I work with Tony for 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> he has a much affection for the black music of that era. He's an incredible guy. But I think back then, back then there was a seeking in every area. Everyone was trying to fill the void of a sense of hopelessness. When Kennedy was assassinated, it was like a shot in the gut to everybody in our country, all of our young people. And it wasn't until the Beatles showed up a couple of years later that we could even smile again. And that, but that was pretty much short lived. And people realized that, that the Beatles couldn't save us. And they realized that a lot of what was going on in their life was still not the dream that they were searching for. And then Martin Luther King gets shot, who's carrying the dream. And then Robert Kennedy and, and a terrible war in Vietnam that nobody believed in. And so there were all these negatives swirling around everyone. And then the one thing that seemed to be potentially positive was music. And so some of our best music was written in that area, not just Christian, but I mean Motown, you, you name it, some of the very best music, rock and roll, the British invasion, all that stuff. It was like there was a, there was a tsunami of creativity in, the, in these wonderful songs. Same thing was happening in gospel music. And there was a, although people might not put it to Christianity or, or put a name on it, there was a spirituality in the music. You, you felt something. It wasn't just clever lyrics and a good bridge and chorus, but there was a, there was a spirituality, there was a connection. And, and so I think it's similar now. I mean, despite all of the upheaval in, in music because of uh, all the downloading and no more CDs and all that kind of stuff, there is a hunger in young people for what they like to say over and over, authentic music, music I can feel, music that moves me. You know, in every, in every move of God, uh, a couple of things seem to happen in church history. One, it's usually around prayer. Usually young people have the courage to do something. Then there's always music, music of that move that the people really remember. They remember Charles Wesley's songs more than they do John Wesley's sermons that inspired the songs. And so I think, so I'm always listening to music. I'm always listening to what's going on now, what is moving people and what isn't. And of course, the enemy's always sowing, the devil's always sowing weeds beside the wheat. And, and so there's a lot of music that's not healthy at all, I don't think, it leads down a very dark path. I'm saying some things that, that are very positive in music. And uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. That's good. How did you get into music in the first place, Wayne? I was 12 years old. I was walking into my living room. My mom said, come watch these guys. They're really cute. And so I went on as Ed Sullivan, 1964, and it was the Beatles. Mm. And my mom helps me remember. I just stopped in my tracks and I said, Mom, I love these guys. This is what I want to do. And then I said, I want to meet that guy, the guy on the, the bass, Paul McCartney. 
And then I went on to my baseball game, and then I stayed riveted the next three weeks as they were on the Ed Sullivan Show. And, and when their albums came out, whoever would get an album, we would all run to their house and put it on the turntable and play it and, and just wear it out. Yeah. But they became yeah. sort of our prophets for our generation, and, and I've always loved their music. And I think it stand, stands on its own uh, to this day. Yes, absolutely. Well, Abbey Road is my favorite album of all time. Yeah. I saw a photograph of you, funny enough, with Paul McCartney. How come you met him? Well, that's an interesting story. I was down in Bristol, England, and I was talking with some young people about learning to hear the voice of God. And then I would, act, I would get them to see if they could hear God and then tell me what they heard. So this one little girl came down, and she was 13, and she said, I was just praying, and I felt like you had a dream when you were 12, and it's going to come true this week. And I thought, well, thank you, dear. That's great. I really appreciate it. <laughs> I had no idea what she's talking about. So I get down to London and my friend Les Moore calls and he says, Wayne, you got to get down to Abbey Road. McCartney's here. He got me into Abbey Road. I'd never been in there before. And uh, so I'm waiting all day for McCartney. To, he was recording. And my friend Paul Balash, who was a, a worship leader, mm -hmm. American worship leader, was there with me. We waited all day. And I was going to have to leave because I had, a, I had an engagement that night. And I thought, well, British people have tea around 4.30. And at the top of Abbey Road Studios is a little cafe where the artists go. So Paul Balash and I went up there and we waited as long as we could. And I told Paul Balash, if McCartney comes, get my autograph, get him, get his autograph for me. So, and I had to leave. And so the stairs come down, they hit a landing and they turn and go down to the lobby. And when I hit the landing, McCartney hit the landing. And I thought I was going to pass out. I thought I was going <laughs> to wet my pants or something. I was, I, here I am with you know, one of my idols. And I said something clever like, Paul McCartney, I'm a big fan. And he said, uh, <laughs> he said, you got good taste, mate. And so that was it. Shook my hand. I went on down the stairs. Then I hear, hear Paul Balash at the top of the stairs say, Paul McCartney, I'm a big fan. And McCartney said, you got, <laughs> you got good taste, mate. And then Paul Balash said, could I have my picture with you? And he said, yeah, and get that nice bloke down there. And they yelled down the stairs, brought me back up. And I got to take my picture with Paul McCartney. Wow. A, a small known fact is that only a few people know is it was a picture of me, Paul McCartney and Paul Balash, but I cut out Paul Balash and it was just me and Paul McCartney. So, <laughs> and then, and then I realized that little girl saw me as a 12 year old seeing something I wanted to be and someone I wanted to meet. And she said, your dream will come true this week. And it did. It's one of those things. Yeah. Scratch your head about, but there's something to it. Yeah. I know Paul McCartney played in the ICC studios, which in Christian terms, most people go, what's that? But uh, their studios used to be down in Eastbourne. Yeah, I've recorded there. I've recorded there. Oh, have you? Yeah, yeah. Paul McCartney actually recorded there once. Yeah. I think they were doing a live recording for uh, MTV. Martin Smith was one of the engineer's assistants that day. Oh, was he? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard many a story about what happened there. Yeah. Yeah, he's supposed to be a really nice bloke, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was the place uh, to record for all the uh, musicians that I knew. So 12 years of age, then you think, right, I want to do that. How come you chose the guitar and not the bass guitar? Well, I played bass, uh, not very well, but I played bass in one of my first bands because we needed a bass player and didn't have one. And then I, then I moved to singing, and it is incredibly hard to sing a rhythm and play bass in a slightly different rhythm. And I just wasn't good at it. Oh, really? So I just took up the acoustic and became lead singer in a couple of bands and 
so I just found that the acoustic was much easier for me to to sing to, for concerts or to lead worship, which I eventually did. And uh, it's just been my instrument of choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And from that, how did you get involved then in going around the world, leading church and everything else? How did that happen? You know, I met a lot of these guys back in the contemporary Christian era. And so made a, I made an album, you know, that, that did pretty well regionally. And then uh, I started being, when I first went to England in 1979, I saw that something was happening in worship that I just wanted and that was different than contemporary Christian music. And I loved it and uh, sort of made it, started making a transition from being a contemporary Christian artist to being a worship leader. And uh, uh, I met some people like uh, Dave and Del Garrett down in New Zealand and became a songwriter for their label that was uh, a part of Maranatha from America. And then I met, Integrity Music was starting, and uh, they brought me down to Mobile and talked about maybe signing with them. But I and, but I went to England before I made that decision, and my friend Dave Bilbro just came and said, Wayne, you need to sign with Kingsway. So that's where your friends are. So I met with John Paculabo, and we talked, and, and I didn't know why he was signing me because there's a lot better singers out there than me, and, and uh I come to find out he thought I sounded a lot like Jerry Rafferty and that was his favorite singer. Oh, really? So okay. I think that was a big deal for him. I didn't know that, but he, he signed me to a one album deal. And, and then uh, I did on, I worked on some compilation albums with them and, and um, started writing songs with Noel Richards. And a lot of those songs got recorded by Noel and others. And next thing I know, we're doing worship togethers. We're doing, traveling up and down the countryside of England and Wales and Scotland and, and uh, Europe, mainland Europe. And uh, I, I was with Kingsway for a number of years. Yeah, so that's how I got, I got more known around, especially in Europe and the UK, is because I had some fantastic friends. Uh, Les Moore produced my albums, had great musicians on it. Mm. And I had a, a number one song. The only bad thing about it is it wasn't a song I'd written. Uh, I did a version of Be Thou My Vision that became number one in Europe. And uh, so that opened up some doors. And there's not been a master plan. It's just sort of unfolded. Mm. And I think in lots of music circles, it's more about the relationships you have. There are a bunch that don't trust very easily when they find someone they trust, then they really are close. And I was fortunate enough to be become close friends with a bunch of wonderful singers and musicians yeah yeah i want to major if that's okay on the, the remaining time before we find out who your christian hero is uh, something you said right at the very beginning really and it's also to do with the fact you find that your most cherished role was being a husband father and grandfather yep look about 50 years ago people were looking for like a father figure maybe they didn't have it if you look in today's society i would say there are even less fathers than there are right. uh, mothers now for yep. children yeah so Tell me more what, what you think about that, please, and what can be done. Well, I think there's an order in that Malachi scripture that says, in the last days, the hearts of the fathers will turn to the children, the hearts of the children will turn to the fathers. I think the order is, is that the fathers and the mothers' hearts turn first. We are the mature ones, hopefully. Mm. I think we're, the generations are often in a, what we call here a Mexican standoff, where they're waiting on each other. Uh, the fathers are waiting for the children to honor them before they bless them. The children are waiting for the blessing before they honor. 
And so it's kind of a standoff. And I think if the parents in the faith, if they can be mature and go ahead and bless the sons and daughters and, and don't worry about being honored, then I think that's the place to start. And then I think there's just something about receiving the blessing of a father and a mother that's not only biblical, but it's very practical. It, it helps you with your identity. It helps you with your confidence. Somebody believes in you. I think honoring will, will be a natural byproduct of that blessing. So I'm encouraging everybody my age and older, a little bit younger, I'll say, find someone younger that wants to move on with God and see what you can do to bless them, whether it's with resources or just with your prayers or with your encouragement. But I think that is a remarkable opportunity for people my age going forward to have a life that is still worthwhile and meaningful and helpful. So maybe I'll start stop there. It's very interesting because we often hear now about how we should be looking up to our elders, and yet in the Western society, we seem not to be doing that so much. Right. You can hear that the, I suppose, one of the buzzwords from the, the older brigade is, well, look at the way that you treat us. They don't, they don't like us and all that sort of stuff. You're actually politely turning it around and saying, well, do something about it then. Exactly. So what could actually happen, do you think? Well, I find that a lot of the young people, they're not interested in coming to a class at church on Sunday morning. But if you'll meet them at a coffee house and uh, mm. just let them talk, they'll stay all afternoon and they will bring up the things that are, are meaningful to them to talk about. And then they will start to uh, initiate, can, hey, can we get together again? You know, we had this phrase in our church a few years ago, is, you'll find us where you are. And I think the church's message has been, you'll find God where we are, so come where we are. And I think that's flipping around now. And I think we need to be where the people are. And so I try to find ways to volunteer or to, to do something where young folks are around that I can I can just be in the mix. And I'm having a wonderful time. I got to go to uh, A&M campus on Corpus Christi, Corpus Christi, Texas, a few weeks ago and meet with a bunch of high school and college kids that wanted to know about the Jesus movement. And, and I said, well, first, tell me about what you're doing. Mm. And they'd led hundreds of people to the Lord on their campus. They were using a, a, a fountain in the middle of their campus to baptize kids every week. Wow. They started telling me about all that. And I said, well, well, you guys are the Jesus movement. And they just kind of stopped. And I said, maybe the best thing I can do is just pray a prayer of impartation. And you can have all the good of what we had and it's yours. And so I prayed with them. And, and so those guys, they call me, they, they message me, they, when I come into town, they want to have a cup of coffee. And so I'm not the one now with them out and telling people about Jesus by the ocean or on the campus. But in a sense, I'm with them because I've been putting courage into them by encouraging them. And, uh, and so they honor me. They'll say all these kind things and, and they buy my book and they, they do all this stuff that's so encouraging. And I think we need to find some appropriate initiative. And then when we get inside that door, we don't go in telling them what to do. Maybe the best thing to do is ask a question. What's going on with you? What's God saying to you? What, what are you hungry for? And then just let them talk. Mm. And then eventually they'll say, well, tell me about the Jesus movement or tell me about your journey. And, and my parents were divorced and I grew up with just my mom. And how has your marriage stayed together? They start asking you the questions that meaningful to them. And so it's wonderful opportunities. 
yeah, it's getting your hands dirty, isn't it? Just yeah. going out and, and being with them. Yeah. What about then, as I mentioned at the very beginning, one of my things for these podcasts are for those that just feel totally discouraged from going to church or totally disillusioned. Yeah. What was it like for you? Do you remember that in sort of 50 years ago for the Jesus movement, if people were disillusioned, no longer going to church? And what can we learn from that for today's society? In our little town, not not any of the other churches would have us around. And I reached out to pastors and said, hey, I'm leading a group of several hundred kids and I don't know what I'm doing. Would you help me? And the only thing they would offer is if we would dress up on Sunday and, and come join their church and they would help us detox and let us be a part of, they didn't use that word, but that's yeah. essentially what they said. And so we just had to find Jesus outside the camp. We met under trees. We met in restaurants. We met in our apartments. Uh, we met out in the open air when it was warm. But church is not a building, never has been. Buildings are helpful and, and they're convenient for, especially when the weather's cold and all that kind of stuff. But we never built our church uh, involvement around a facility, a building. It was always built around people. So I would say if you've been disillusioned or, or disenchanted with church, there's a promise that Jesus always keeps. He, he said he will not disappoint us. And he's the only one that will never disappoint you. And so I would say go after him. Whatever grouping that you meet together with your friends, whether it's a coffee house or your living room or whatever it may be, and just ask the questions that you have to him. And then just listen, see if he might speak to you. Uh, do what he said to do. Read. We used to have this phrase when we read the, the, the Bible, it was read the red and pray for the power. So wherever we found the, uh, the red letters, that's the things that Jesus said. So we just read that. Then we pray, Lord, give us the power to do what you've asked us to do. And then we started seeing miracles happen. And so I would say, I understand being disillusioned with church. And, but I think it's not God's people, but I think it's the religion that the church has, a lot of the church has been sucked into. And religion is not the church. It's, it's rituals, it's, it's, uh, it's methods, it's, it's rules and regulations. It's basically control. Yeah. But Jesus came, to, Jesus came to set us free. And so I think don't give up on Jesus. No matter what you've done or no matter where you've been, what you've experienced, how disappointed you've been, don't give up on Jesus because he has not given up on you. I promise. If I'm sitting here doing this today, I can bet you I didn't feel qualified that I could ever even be a, a good follower of Jesus. And here I am 50 years later because of him. And he's never disappointed me, not once. I've had disappointments, but it's never been with him. I won't ask you what your disappointments are, but to continue on this briefly, the Christmas podcast with uh, Noel Richards and Martin Scott, one of the subjects that came up was uh, Christians drinking beer and wine. Right. And many a story was then unleashed by, by them both. How much of that, I promise, is still within the church in America that could actually stop people from wanting to go back to church because, oh, you won't let me have a beer or you won't let me have a glass of wine? How much of that is a problem still? Everybody interprets Scripture toward their preferences. and But I think if, from my perspective, if you are honest about looking at the Scriptures, it doesn't say don't drink. It just says drink in moderation. Don't get drunk. And so that has been our approach. So we have wine with communion. We have folks over at our house. We have wine. 
and we tailgate, we'll drink a beer, but that is, we're really the minority in the Bible Belt. I mean, perhaps not if everybody was honest, but as far as outwardly, it, it, it's bad for business. If you go to, if you're counting on a big church that you're a part of to support you and they hear that you drink and then they want to catch you out of the church, it's, and there's all kinds of uh, things that happen. But when I first went to England, they were singing a song called Being Myself in the Lord. And uh, that stuck with me. And part of my quest and my journey is uh, not to just throw off saying that you can do anything you want to do and be a, a strong believer, but my quest has been to be myself in the Lord. And mm -hmm. I don't personally see anything wrong with drinking. I don't think it's wise to get drunk. Uh, I think there's too many things can go wrong, whether you're driving or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Some people have a propensity to uh, to become an alcoholic. And so if I had a guy come into my house that I knew was a recovering alcoholic, I probably wouldn't offer him a beer, you know. So I think it's it's about being wise and, and preferring your brother. But once you make a rule that I cannot drink because it might offend someone, you might as well throw it all out because if you do everything Jesus tells you to do, you're going to offend a lot of people. And I've done that. I've yeah. offended a lot of people in my life. But here I am. How have you offended people then? Well, we didn't wear suits. You know, if you think about back in the day, we had long hair, wore T-shirts, often didn't wear shoes or sandals, bell-bottom pants, things like that. And so we didn't look like church people. If folks were interested in us, it was because we were a project, not because we were a person. Ah, yeah, yeah. So that offended people. And then when it came out that we had wine and communion, oh my gosh, all hell broke loose. Suddenly we were having, uh, people were saying around town that we were having orgies and that we were getting drunk and, and all this, stuff, which none of it was true. We offended people right and left. And then one guy got up in his, he had a radio program, a Christian radio program, and he got up and said that, he said publicly for folks not to have anything to do with us because we were worldly and ungodly. And I went over to see him and walked into his office and he was bobbing and weaving. And I finally said, I said, you know, you said all these things, you know, you didn't once ask me. And I said, Matthew 18 says, if you have ought against someone, go to them. And you didn't come to me. I said, here I am. We talked and then he went back and he withdrew his comments. Wow. Somebody from our group of people had gone to his church and they were bringing our belief system into his church and it offended his people and he, and he traced it back to us. So without even knowing it, I vicariously had offended the whole church. So things like that. And the music we played and when we started music in church was choirs and gospel quartets and one guy in front leading, you know, a big choir. But we brought in those devil drums that were straight from Africa. You know, oh, yes. we brought in electric guitars and bass guitars, and, and we actually moved when we played music. That was very offensive. And then we and then we discovered the gifts of the Spirit are for today, and we started moving in various gifts. One in particular was prophecy, and uh, we explored that for a long time. We made sure it was biblical. Then we started to move in it, and... Uh, You'd have thought that we had dropped a bomb in the middle of our town, that we were over here actually saying that God spoke to us, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so I remember talking to one guy in one denomination. He said, God only speaks through the Bible. He does not speak to us today. And I said, well, tell me this. You said earlier that you felt called to preach. 
Who called you? He couldn't answer. And so, so God gave me, God put words in my mouth at times when I was sort of being delivered up to be roasted and gave me good questions like that. But we didn't try to offend anyone. We really didn't. We were, you know, we were summer of love and all that. We were all about peace and love. That's what we were about. But people can't get past the outward. So sometimes. Sometimes keep going. If you've been told by God what to do. Yep. Then you just have to keep going until he tells you otherwise. Exactly. Exactly. You got it. And yet all too often, either the first time someone comes boo at you, you back away and say, well, I've tried that. And God mm-hmm. wants you just to keep on going. So what mm-hmm. pitfalls have you had, if that's all right? I'm looking at you for encouragement here. What's kept you going when it's been really sort of downtime and really upsetting time? Well, I don't mean to sound super spiritual, but I've always had a deeply personal walk with Jesus. Sometimes when I felt alone, I felt his presence and I felt his closeness. He's spoken to me most clearly in some of the deepest valleys that I've been in. And he's a he's been a good shepherd to me. He's been everything to me, but one of the things he's been is a shepherd. And he uh, has cared for me. He's spoken to me. He's opened doors that I couldn't open. He's closed doors I didn't need to go through. But if I had a wonderful wife who's believed in me and She's encouraged me from day one, and she gave up a lot to be my wife. And uh, she's been incredible. And from the early days of our church, we highlighted having a commitment to one another. And so I've had friends that have been with me all these years. And so they they have encouraged me. They're not too enamored by me. They'll tell me that that song is terrible. Don't sing it. Hmm. They're just as likely to say, that's a great song. You need to get it out there. And so, so I've had some friends and family uh, but especially my relationship with Jesus has been what has sustained me and has kept me going. I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but I've never been loved by anyone like he's loved me. I just haven't. And uh, didn't have a good relationship with my dad growing up. And uh, my wife and I were the oldest people in our group. So we became leaders because there's no one older than us. Mm. And so that Jesus was, uh, he met me where I was and, uh, walked me through a lot of stuff. So with that in mind, for those that are listening today that are feeling just really cheesed off, they can't go back to church for whatever reason, or they've been really hurt by Christians who are very good at hurting others, let's face it, even though they might not understand why they're doing it, what would you say to them to encourage them? Well, again, it's about following Jesus if you're a believer, and one of his hallmark teachings was forgiveness. So rather than carrying around bitterness and hurt, even if they don't ask for your forgiveness, which they should, you need to go ahead and forgive them. You need to go ahead. And and for me, I say it by name. If there's a guy, say Charlie, that I'm holding something against, I will say just between me and the Lord, I'll, I'll pray. I forgive you, Charlie, for what you said or what you did. And I'm not going to walk around with the cancer of bitterness in my heart. I want to be free and I'll never be free unless, uh, I can forgive as I've been forgiven. So I would say start there. And now just because you forgive someone doesn't mean that you trust them. It doesn't mean that you can forget. It just means that you can you can be free. When you don't forgive somebody else, you don't put them in a prison. It puts you in a prison. Mm. So I would say start there. Just make a list of people that have hurt you or a church that has been mean to you or whatever it is. And just determine in your heart to forgive them. 
and then just keep following Jesus. You know, there's a, there's a principle that says as we follow him, we are being transformed in a progression of one degree of glory to another. So wherever, whenever you don't forgive, it retards your progression. It'll, it'll slow you down if it won't stop you. So I would say, without a doubt, forgiveness is one of the very first things you ought to do. And then you may discover that you may need some forgiveness and let God show you that and then be honest about it. I thought this about them or I said this to them and maybe I shouldn't have done that. And that can all be in the privacy of your own prayer. But as you move on in the Lord as a believer, and I hope that you are a believer, he will show you how to walk through those things how to be an overcomer and not to be overcome. And, you know, someone said that the church is the only organization that kills its wounded. And I've certainly seen that happen a lot of times. But I'm telling you, we had a Savior that was wounded for our transgressions. He died a horrible, horrible death so that we could be free from sin. So, one, keep your eyes on Jesus and Try not to look at other things. Number two, wherever you find unforgiveness in your heart, get rid of it as quickly as you can. Maybe that's enough. Well, I'll add on another one. Maybe buy one of your books because I think the title says it all, really. He still speaks to kids, whether you're a big kid or a little kid. Right. In the remaining few minutes, and this isn't a sales pitch, but I really think it's going to be important for us to know more about these books. So tell us more, please. About three or four years ago, I started seeing a lot of kids come forth in my in my meetings and concerts to be saved, and they were all 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and I, it just kept being consistent, and I started getting prophetic words for kids that would be around 12, and they were so hungry, and I thought, well, just in a few years' time, they'll become teenagers, they'll become disillusioned, the world will grab them, and, the, and I just felt a question in my spirit, what would it have been like? If I could have heard God when I was young, yeah. what would I have missed? So I started me down a path, and I, I talked a lot with my friend, my co-author with our first book, He Still Speaks, and I, his name's Tom Lane. And I said, Tom, could we write a book? It's not for youth. It's for parents, grandparents, pastors, youth leaders, whoever works with youth that could equip them to teach and create environments that young people could learn to hear from God. And we used examples like the boy Samuel looked at what Jesus was doing when he was 12 years old. And we looked at the ages of some of the disciples were really young. And so we, I took from, say, five or six years old up to 12. And then Tom took from 13-year-olds to however, because you can be 40 years old and a brand-new believer and a babe. So we put the book together, and, and it was Gateway Publishing, published it for us. And it's it's done quite well. And I'm really happy with what's going on with it. The idea was not for it to be a bestseller per se. I mean, I'd be fine with that. <laughs> but we want to see young people learn to hear the Lord themselves to where yes. when their friend Johnny comes up and says, hey, let's go do some weed and get high or whatever. They can hear that still small voice saying, well, maybe that's not something I should do. But even beyond that, we our kids in our church, we've, we've created a prophetic culture here that Kids expect to hear from God. So our kids pray for their classmates, and then they've been trained to go out and tell them what they've heard. Hey, Johnny, I was praying for you this morning, and, and I felt like you were hurting somewhere. Is there anything I can pray for you about? 
well, yeah, and then tell, and then those kids show up and give their lives to Jesus. And here in our America, we let 18-year-olds fly billion-dollar airplanes, and we won't even let them be an usher or a greeter in our church. What a great point. Absolutely. So we've been, I've been sharing that message, and I've been praying over kids, and it's just been wonderful. I remember one of the people that I've been mentoring and taking with me is my granddaughter, Madison, and, and she uh, can I tell you one story. It's, it's in the book. Please. When Madison was, was nine years old, we were sitting out on the porch talking, and she just out of the blue said, she said, Papa, does God really speak to you? And I said, well, yeah, he does sometimes. And, and then rather than bloviate about myself, I just said, well, well, Madison, does God ever speak to you? And she said, all the time. And I said, what do you mean he speaks to you all the time? Tell me, what, when does he speak? She said, well, there was a bully bothered me at school, and, and, and I was really worried about going to school. I was going to stay home and lie to my mom that I was sick or something. And I just heard, I heard inside my head, I'm right here with you. It'll be okay. And then I went to school, and the bully came up and made friends with me. And I said, is that the only time it's happened? She said, well, no. She said, she said, I was watching a movie I shouldn't have watched. And I was scared at night. I didn't want to tell my mom that I'd watched this horrible movie. And so I, lay, I said, Jesus, help me. And he said, I'm right here with you. It's going to be okay. She said, and I went right to sleep. And uh, she said, he speaks to me like that all the time. So I started taking her with me. And, you know, I use these yellow pads that I, I prophesy over yeah. people, these yellow pads. Yeah, big thing in America to use yellow pads. I gave her a, a starter kit, a five by seven. And she's in the car with me. I'm going to preach and prophesy at this church. And I said, Madison, I want you to ask God to give you words for people. She's, what do I do? I said, just ask God to show you someone and write down what you see. So she sits there. She says, okay, got it. So we get to the church and she God had given her, she had a picture of a lady and what she was wearing, what part of the room she would be sitting in and a word of encouragement for her. So we get to the church and she breaks away from me and runs before we're even introduced or anything. And she goes to the front row because she found the lady. She said, hi, my name's Madison. And I'm learning to hear from God. And here's what I heard. And could this be for you? And she shared it with him. The lady starts to cry and says, she said, you are an answer to prayer. So she's been going with me and learning to prophesy and having words of knowledge. And my wife and I have tried to create an environment that that's normal. That's not abnormal to hear from God. Not just the special people can hear from God, mm. but we're a kingdom of priests. We can all hear from God. So I get excited talking about that stuff. Well, you've got every reason to be. And unfortunately, we're running out of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate it. All I need to know now, and I thank you for the stories that you shared. And for people that want to get hold of your book, would it be fair in saying that it's on Amazon? It's on Amazon. Uh, the Anglican Church up, up in London has a bunch of copies there. But it's just too expensive to send it from America. But on Amazon, you can get it. Yeah, so just go there. Brilliant. And, of course, if they want to find out more about you, if you just type in Wayne Drain onto Google, right. they'll find your website. Right. Wayne, just leads me now into our final question, and that is to find out who is your Christian hero? And obviously just a, a little prefix to go with that, which is that it has to be someone that's not in the Bible and dead mm. so that we can say, oh, yes person is bonafide all these years later so wayne drain who is your christian hero it's not even a question for me his name is laddie mcdonough he was a guy uh, 
that was in the latter rain movement of the 40s and 50s. And he took an interest in me as a young man in the Jesus movement. And he invited me to go with him and lead worship while he spoke. And, and over about a three or four year period, he mentored me in the prophetic. And he loved me and my wife. He saw more in me than I could see in me. And I remember one night I was down in Texas with Laddie and he took his coat off and he put his coat around my shoulders. And he said, today I, I pass my mantle to you. And he became a father in the faith to me. And he, he died just a few years ago. But the last 10, 12 years of his life, he lived here in Russellville as part of our church. And uh, without a doubt, I don't know if I would be here today without his influence. And so he's one of the reasons that I'm so big on mentoring and on, uh, on uh, fathers in the faith, reaching out to sons and daughters, because uh, we're not meant to be alone. I think one of God's provisions is to put us in families. And Laddie sure was that for me. Tell us a bit more about him, because I've, I've never heard of him. Tell us a bit more about him, please. Well, he, his heritage is from Scotland, you know, McDonough, but he, he grew up here in Arkansas. And his ministry is pretty much in the Midwest. Uh, he has strong prophetic gift. And he went to mainly smaller churches across the Midwest. He ventured out some of the East Coast and West Coast, but it's mainly in the Midwest. And he, uh, as was his heritage in the Latter Rain movement, gave personal prophecies. He had words of knowledge and uh, it encouraged people. He taught some, but his, but his real gift was in prophesying. And uh, he's married, had... Uh, three boys. One of his boys is still in our church today. And one of my friends, he's on my board of directors of Wayne Dream Ministries. And uh, people will say of Laddie that he just, they never heard him get a word wrong. He was always spot on with the words that he gave. And that's testimony far and near. He went to with me to England one time and he hated it. It was so cold. He never wanted to go back. <laughs> He'd go to places like the Caribbean where it was warm, oh, yes. but he just didn't even go to cold places. But he uh, uh, was part of our church and part of our elder team for a while and lived his life with integrity. He finished well, and uh, he's uh, highly honored in the circles that I run in. And uh, I felt so blessed that he gave me that opportunity to have, because my, my, my biological dad didn't know the Lord until years later when I led him to the Lord. That's a whole other story. But, but Laddie filled that void in my life and helped me learn more about the scripture and about prophetic and and so I give him lots and lots of kudos for what he did. Well, it's great to hear someone that I've never heard of before and that he's passed on his mantle to you and you're doing yep. likewise. Yep. I can listen to you more and more and more. Uh, unfortunately, time has beaten us, Wayne. Thank you so much for joining us. And are we going to see you in the UK in 2024? I'll be at the Pioneer Conference in uh, late February, early March. And then uh, I think... Uh, Billy Kennedy and Ness Wilson will be leading that. And I might be back over in July. I may be going to Wales in July, and I'll go to a thing called Lark in the Park down in Sidcup and probably a few more places down in Eastbourne, things like that. But that's all yet to be worked out. And, of course, to finish it off beautifully, if you're going to Sidcup, you have to go for a curry afterwards. Absolutely. <laughs> Wayne, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been brilliant. My pleasure.